I hadn't, I had it not on. Thank you. Yeah. So we're on board. <laughs> Good. Okay. So let me just start again. Following up from last night, I spoke of three dimensions in which sati transforms the experience of suffering, the experience of unsatisfactoriness of dukkha. And um, by changing the content, in other words, by changing the focus of attention, that will be the first, my capacity to choose where attention goes, to take responsibility, to, do, to claim authorship of my attentional processes rather than leaving them up to habit, to the unconscious seeking of pleasant and avoiding unpleasant, which usually governs the, the, the economy of our attention. And the Buddha juxtaposes this with acknowledging these forces that act on our attentional process and instead of just letting this happen quasi-organically, but in fact uh, governed by delusion and un unawareness, we reclaim authorship of what happens with our attention. We choose where to bestow it, we choose where to direct it, and we learn the skills to sustain attention, even on things that have lost their natural interest for us. Yeah, that's much what meditation training is about. That will be the first dimension in which sati directly changes the experience of dukkha. The second dimension is that I change my relationship. Instead of habitually go into a reactive mode, meaning if it's pleasant, I want it, I feel longing for it. Uh, if I don't get it, I feel disappointed, frustrated by it. If I don't like it, I want to get rid of it, I feel averse to it, I turn away my attention from it. Yeah, those would be habitual patterns of reactiveness in, respon in response to basically Vedana. And instead of this, the second dimension of transformation uses sati to actually voluntarily enter into a different relationship. That might mean that I turn towards, that might mean that I withhold some of my uh, emotional re responses, and that might mean that I consciously develop a type of attention that is capable of being with things I would naturally not be particularly keen on being attentive of. Um, what would be resources in this? Well, the resources for the first dimensions are recalling that I have a choice. Under all circumstances, I have a choice where to attend. The resources for our second dimension are, well, metta, for example, the uh, friendliness, the attitude of non-anger, if you so want. You know? Santuti, contentment the attitude of non-greed. Avihingsa, harmlessness, the attitude of non-violence. Kanti, the patience or the beautiful old word forbearance. Or if you want it psychologically, the attitude of non-reactivity, you know, the willingness to bear with something. Upaya, 
skillful means, the uh, capacity to find ways in, to use my intelligence, to use my creativity, to respond to something in, in another way than I habitually would. You know? In other words, if you figure your own habit patterns, you learn to not gratify those habit patterns by consciously and with some effort and some determination choosing other ways to respond to this and find out whether this changes the game. If you have followed your habits long enough, you become more curious and more motivated to try something else, even though it may be more difficult than following the habit. But at some point you get tired of your habits, and if your habits haven't made you awakened by now, you won't risk much by trying to deviate from them. At, at worst it's a little effortful and doesn't yield much results, but there's a good chance that deviating, already deviating from your habits, actually will bring some revealing insights in what's going on and maybe even change your experience of suffering. Or at least empower you in some way that you can influence that experience, that you can influence that situation, which albeit it may not complete freedom from the pain of that situation, but it gives you the clarity that you have an influence and a power to make a difference there. The third dimension in which sati changes is that it changes not the content, it doesn't change the relationship, it changes the notion from where from I have this experience. In other words, it changes the notion to my protagonist, it changes the notion to my self-construct. By holding the self-construct differently, um, I suddenly find that my experience is not the same if the hardness, if the contraction, if the solidity of the self-construct is not there anymore or has loosened, maybe, or uh, is, uh, is acknowledging the the process nature of my experience, rather than uh, me being an essential self who essentially gets the same old horrors that I remember having had since I can think of. Huh? That's a somewhat different perspective for me. And acknowledging the dynamic nature of experience, acknowledge the dynamic nature of my personal sense functioning, my mind functioning, and the conditioned nature of this is a powerful antidote to feeling locked into a self that keeps having the same experiences, that keeps failing in same ways, keeps being locked out of the same uh, happiness, keeps being affirmed in the same victimization patterns, for example. A powerful transformation comes about through acknowledging the universal nature of my experience. Most of us, for most of the time, take what's happening to me very, very serious and very, very personally. And it seems to be part of contemplative practice that we learn to find out that what we take highly personally is actually a universal experience. I'm not the only one who gets angry. I'm not the only one who gets disappointed. I'm not the only one who has pain. I'm not the only one who fails in something. I'm not even the only one that dies. You know? When you die, when your moment of death comes, 
there'll be ten thousands which will be dying at the very same moment. Isn't that comforting? Even at the moment of death, I won't quite be alone. There may be greater comforts than that, admittedly, but it's, it, somehow, <laughs> it somehow even takes my personal death somehow into, it kind of contextualizes even this getting born and dying thing, I don't quite do alone. There's been quite a few folks who've gone through this. In fact, just about everyone who came around here has gone through this or will go through this. Buddhists even uh, you know, have another spin. They say, this is going to continue happening. <laughs> whether you find that comforting, as some people in the West do, or whether you find that utterly discomforting, like the Indian uh, mind, where this idea comes from, um, do is, an, is another matter. But uh, it definitely challenges our notion of me being a sort of protrusion into the universe and basically having to make my own way. The most personal of your experience, whatever you can think of, will be shared by many, many, many other peoples. Including your birth, your death, your happiness, your suffering. There's something profoundly universal about this, although we take it very, very personal. And it is stupid, isn't it? taking the first gray hair when you meet them in front of your mirror as a personal failure is somehow stupid in, the ve- in, in, in view of things that everybody is aging, everybody is growing older. It has a personal dimension, we're not denying this, but that personal dimension is wildly overblown in our usual experience. And this third dimension of transformation acknowledges the universality of the characteristics of, exi- of existence. It acknowledges the universality of most of the stuff we experience personally. And somehow that seems to loosen our grip on a self-construct. And that in turn seems to soften our way how we relate to the experience of suffering. There's an enigmatic little passage that occurs over 90 times in the canon. So generally it occurs together with the development of the awakening factors, about which I haven't said a word so far, and about the development of the Eightfold Path. And that little phrase uh, is called Viveka Nisitang, Viraga Nisitang, Nirodha Nisitang, Osaga Parinamim. And I wanted to read you that little phrase. Um, Here, the phrase is connected to the development of the first of the bhajangas, the mindfulness awakening factor. The phrase runs like this. Here, the practitioner develops the mindfulness awakening factor, which is supported by seclusion, viveka, supported by dispassion, viraga, supported by cessation, niroda, and matures in surrender, vasaga, parinam. Supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and matures in surrender. Now there's something really powerful about that little phrase. A, anything that occurs 90 times in the canon has to be taken serious to start with. 
than anything that occurs together with the bhajangas, which the awakening factors, and with the uh, development of the Eightfold Path so often has to be taken serious. So, what are we, what are we meaning by this? Developing of the mindfulness fact, awakening factor, which is supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and matures in surrender. Or another translation is that um, culminates in relinquishment. I think that's how Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it. If you look closely, we we see differing psychological factors in here. The development of awakening factors, the development of the Eightfold Path is supported by seclusion. The first of these seclusions is the bodily seclusion. It's physical aloneness. Now, that helps. Getting a perspective on my story, sometimes it helps if I spend some days, some time, some hours physically alone. Just gives me a different feeling on how I relate to the rest of the world. German philosopher Nietzsche said he couldn't take any man serious who wouldn't spend a third of his day alone. You know, he couldn't take any man's thinking serious unless he was willing and actually did spend a third of his day alone. Well, that's an interesting thought. We are different in company and when we're with ourselves, isn't it? That throws some light. So the development of awakening facts and of the Eightfold Path is supported by forms of aloneness, seclusion. But this is not just physical seclusion. The maybe, maybe the most powerful seclusion is the second one. It's the, it's the citta viveka, it's the seclusion of mind. It's the capacity to turn our light inwards. It's the, it's the primordial contemplative move. Returning the light to one's own process, rather than having attention go out in habitual seeking patterns or avoiding patterns, we turn attention or awareness, maybe more precisely, inward and acknowledge the process nature of the subjective side of experience rather than trying to fiddling with, with the objective side of experience. There's another uh, type of viveka which is a bit technical and probably out of reach right now. It's called upadi viveka, which uh, we need to have more breath for that one. This passion. Viraga is an interesting concept. The Indian mind uses the term red for this. Yeah? Raga, you may know that from Indian music, where it doesn't quite mean the same as it does in Buddhist psychology. In Indian music, it just means mood by now, the coloring of a particular mood. Uh, so there, therefore, the ragas have their uh, name. In Buddhist psychology, raga means passion. It's the coloring of the mind with the red of passion. So the word raja, raja means also red, rajati means to, to redden, and the opposite, virajati, means to lose passion, to lose the redness, redness of things. So viraga is what we translate as the fading away of passions, the fading away of the intense burning quality in our experience. Now, for most of us, this is probably not an attractive concept. You know, this passion sounds slightly boring, isn't it? It sounds slightly, I'm losing vitality, things losing color there, uh, things turning pale. But the 
Buddhist psychology acknowledges that the effect of passion on the mind does not really heighten our chances for happiness or clarity or liberation. An impassioned mind, as much as we have uh, praise for people who find their passions, we also acknowledge that such people are not necessarily at, at their clearest. You know, they may be at their strongest. They may feel most vitalized, but generally they're not at their clearest. And um, if you have strong emotions, or maybe if you don't have emotions, if you just have straight passions, where other people have lukewarm emotions, you, know, you probably know what I talk of. Um, I, I love the experience of being passionate, and yet I know very well that being passionate doesn't make me more effective, it doesn't make me more clear, and it doesn't really seem to be a very good foundation for happiness. It does seem to give me energy, and I love being vitalized. But there's other ways that I could feel vitalization, other than being passionate about something. Buddhist teaching is very clear that the seeking of the aspect of this passion is a powerful phase in the maturing of my heart. It is a powerful phase in the development of my mindfulness if I can be mindful in dispassionate ways, or things that lose their color, still I'm capable of attending to. Habitually we would not be very interested in this, and we are encouraged by meditative exercises time and again to attend to that which fades, that which passes, that which loses its intensity. And to develop the skill of attentional focus on such things is highly praised and is highly effective because it reconciles us gradually with the fading nature of much of our experience. Much of our experience falls out of the picture if we rely on habitual, on um, involuntary types of attention. Cessation is the next one which we tend not to acknowledge, and here we are encouraged to bring about awareness of cessation, the ending of things. One of my teachers used to go around for a whole season and every time he said goodbye to somebody, he said, goodbye forever. Yeah. Really startling, somebody says to you, goodbye forever, adieu. Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledging the unpredictability uh, of future, acknowledging that there is no guarantee that we will meet again, acknowledging that there is a uniqueness that will never quite be the same. In, however, our re- encounters may constellate themselves. We will never quite meet in the same way. So, goodbye forever. That does something to the mind, isn't it? Cessation is not something we're hot on by Involuntary attention is particularly keen on cessation when it's the cessation of unpleasant things. Yeah, we can't wait till they disappear and cease. For pleasant things, we're rather un- unhappy about the, their cessation. So we have a very biased take on cessation. Buddhist teaching encourages us to acknowledge cessation in, independent of pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah. Acknowledge cessation as a universal factor. If things arise and grow, they will also vein and cease. We completely deny that. If you ever speak to economists about growth, it sounds like growth 
just is something that continually expands, that does not decrease, that does not end, that does not wither or so. If you look at the forest, it looks a bit different. The notion of growth out there is very different than the notion of growth in economists' talk, if you bother caring about this. So cessation is something that supports the next one, and that this is enigmatic term, vosaga, which means both giving up and yielding into. The commentaries say it's the giving up of defilements. Commentaries are always a little didactic and a little predictable, but uh, sometimes they're useful. So it's the yield, it's the giving up of defilement and you yield into Nibbana. You you yield into liberation. Um, If you take that psychologically, you give up s- reactiveness and you yield or you surrender to something, to a process. You don't quite know where it's going to merge into, or, but you, you trust and there's a surrendering into something. Yeah? You stop trying to fend for yourself. You stop trying to protect a protagonist, a construct. It is a, it's a yes. It's a yes to the process. So consider these couple of terms and um, see their, um, deba- their encouragement in the development of both the awakening factors and the Eightfold Path. Um, seclusion, dispassion, cessation, maturing and surrender. Good, let's practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.